Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Zooming under the blanket. We love it. We love to see it. Um. <laughs> Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with ProPublica's Dara Lind and with Dylan Matthews, who is, uh, he's ducking under a blanket doing old school, real audiophile stuff here. Um, Dylan. Glad to have you here. Glad to be here under this blanket. It's awesome. Um, so I, I wanted to talk about a piece that that you did recently about vaccines and uh, essentially like what 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 can have we learned from the COVID vaccination experience, which you know I, I think in some ways exceeded expectations, but in other ways has not been like as amazing as it could be. And, you know, can we can we develop vaccines and, and actually manufacture them like much, much better in the future? Right. So the the piece is really about what we can what we can exploit out of the way that vaccines were developed uh, during this pandemic, that uh, this has been remarked upon uh, a bit in the popular press. And so listeners might know a little bit about it. But uh, the two main technologies used for uh, COVID vaccines, uh, the mRNA vaccines from Pfizer and, and Moderna, and then the adenovirus vector vaccines from uh, Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca, nothing had really been done like that before. Traditional vaccine development usually used uh, sort of either dead or sort of weakened real viruses. Uh, I believe the measles vaccine is is an example of this, where you uh, you kill or weaken uh, the existing uh, virus. You get immunities from being exposed to that the way that you often get immunities from being exposed to a real virus after being infected by it. Calibrating that was really hard. Uh, you you obviously don't want to give people a strong enough uh, virus to actually get infected and have uh, negative symptoms. And it was just a very long and involved process. Um, I think the record before COVID for time between sort of designing a vaccine and it being approved was about four years. And that was considered incredibly, incredibly fast. But partly due to sort of decades of R&D by some sort of forward thinking researchers, what happened during COVID was that the, those traditional methods weren't used. Um, and instead, uh, because of the gravity of the situation and the the time pressure uh, that the world was under to get this thing under control, we started using what are called vaccine platform technologies. Um, so mRNA vaccines, for instance, work by sort of flooding the recipient's system with uh, strands of messenger RNA, uh, which uh, sort of gives instructions to cells for how to produce proteins, tells them to produce proteins that kind of simulate the disease that you're protecting against, and then uses that to build up an immunity. It's a clever idea and something that like had been talked about as a kind of pie in the sky idea, the way that 
I don't know, people sometimes talk about sort of tiny nuclear reactors as something that's always five years away. But there was suddenly a ton of interest in this. And what's interesting about it, uh, and, and this is where sort of my piece comes in, is not just that it worked for COVID. It's that it's it's much more of a sort of plug and play solution than the old way of making vaccines. That if the old way of making vaccines was kind of like an artisanal cobbler making shoes together, this is like an assembly line manufacturing process. And what's remarkable for COVID is that it took them a weekend to take the DNA sequence for COVID and turn it into an mRNA vaccine. And that just sets up a ton of possibilities uh, for future pandemic response, which I can can get into. Well, I, I think that that point about the weekend is is important because I still think a lot of people don't realize that, right, that, that this was um, essentially like they made the vaccine right away. And the months that it took to have vaccines available were times that it took to go through the the regulatory process to get it approved. And obviously, you're not going to start injecting people with like a totally untested vaccine. Um, But it puts, uh, for one thing, like it puts the testing regime in a different light, right? If you're assuming that developing any kind of vaccine is going to take years and years and years of scientific effort, then the disease itself is obviously going to spread. Right? Like, like we were really glad to have the measles vaccine when it came out. Right. But measles was already endemic at that point. And so, you know, do you get it done three weeks sooner? Like it's not a big deal. Right. But that one of the things that changes if you have like a much better way to sort of reliably develop vaccines is that these other things, right, like how long does it take to manufacture the vaccine? How long does it take to get regulatory approval? All that stuff starts like looming much, much larger than it did with traditional kind of um, slower development methods. And and to that point, sort of traditional methods are uh, are great for endemic diseases. Uh, they're great for polio, great for eradicating smallpox. The closest thing we had to, to COVID before this is just seasonal flu, uh, where you're, you constantly have novel varieties of the flu that are coming out that you have to protect against. And we have a whole flu shot infrastructure using sort of traditional methods for that. Um, but it kind of sucks. Like, you should get your flu shot. I get my flu shot every year. Like, this, the official stance of Vox is that you should get your flu shot. But you're guessing months in advance what the dominant strain of the flu is going to be. And sometimes they get it wrong. And it takes so long to design these things uh, that you really can't do it any other way. And as you're saying, with with mRNA vaccines and adenovirus vaccines, it moves the hard part from designing the vaccine to getting it approved and manufacturing it. And there, there are a lot of interesting ideas for shortening the testing and approval process. I know sort of uh, the weeds has talked about. Uh, I'm blanking on this now. The live, live uh, human subjects, uh, human challenge trials. Yes, human challenge trials. Yes, I've written articles about this, but but it's been a long pandemic. You're under a blanket. <laughs> like it's fine. We're grading you on the blanket. I'm, I'm thinking as fast as I can under the the thermal conditions. But yeah, so the thing, the idea is like challenge trials and and sort of combining phases of testing to speed that up. What my article is really about is the next process of sort of once we know this works, how do we make as many of these things as, as humanly possible and sort of compress the time uh, that it takes to sort of vaccinate enough people that that as as listeners will recall, 
all these these vaccines were approved in December. And it wasn't until about April that we got to a point where uh, any adult who wanted one could get a vaccine. There are many months where people desperately wanted vaccines uh, and, and there was just a shortage. That's a, a policy decision. And my articles are about ways to get out of that bind and shorten that period in the future. The other reason that I think this is interesting, and I know that like when we're talking about uh you know, pandemic conditions, it's a little ludicrous to even say, but like there's a broader issue here, but there, but it, it does really get to the heart of the, of like the relationship between science and technology right now, right? And how those things are funded. Because we're talking about a scenario in which there was a very obvious profit incentive to being able to build a quicker, better vaccine. Like that's a lot of, you know, potentially wasted manufacturing effort. It's a very large you know, market share potential to somebody who can guarantee that they have like the most the most effective vaccine on the market. And yet you still had a period of, you know, several years to decades where this thing that seemed like an achievable, you know, engineering innovation had not yet actually been realized. And I wonder, you know, is the is was the barrier there that there just wasn't enough of an incentive to you know, do the, the like the necessary R and D investment was just too big a number until the government started throwing money around on COVID vaccines, or was there something else here that indicates that maybe the tethering of biomedical R and D to the kind of short to medium term profit demands of the pharma industry are not necessarily the best way to do things? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, there's there's a famous story about uh, one of the researchers who came up with mRNA as a method, um, a woman who had been been working at Pfizer for many years and who just kept running into resistance. And like, there's there's a real shot she'll win a Nobel Prize now, but she uh, she she faced a lot of internal resistance just because these are large bureaucracies that are used to their ways of doing things. And while vaccines are a good business, they're they're kind of a weird business. Like Pfizer's most famous drug before. The pandemic was Viagra. And Viagra is a great drug because uh, you have to take it sort of either every day or every time you have sex. And uh, you, you use it for years and sort of there's a large base because a, a lot of people with penises have, have erectile dysfunction. And vaccines are sort of the opposite, that while everyone should get them, you get them once. And so there's there's much less of a sort of recurring revenue stream. And so they're, they're less attractive in some ways than other kinds of drug development. Um but what I would say is that part of the success story of, of mRNA is the specific company of Moderna. Moderna is a really weird company that, that was sort of a recent biotech startup. And the name actually comes from mRNA. So it's M. Moderna. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> sort of. It's, it's, it's like clever the way the arrow in the FedEx logo is clever. Um, but they were kind of like a, a nothing company for many years that had made this big bet on this technology that didn't really have buy-in. And there wasn't really reason for people to shift to this novel sort of more expensive technology for routine vaccines like measles or uh, polio or, or other things. And the bet of the company and its investors was that there was going to come a point where where there was demand for this shift. And that point came, and that was a really good bet on their part in retrospect. But one thing I, I sort of wonder about is if we didn't have a massive pandemic, would Moderna have just failed because they put all their eggs in this basket that was like a good technology, but not one that had sort of available revenue streams or, or available buy-in from um, sort of vaccine purchasers, insurance companies and like. Um, 
And I mean, we're lucky the a silver lining of the last year is that that they survived and this we have proof of concept for this technology. And I suspect a lot of other mRNA manufacturers are going to come down the line uh, in the wake of Moderna's success. But yeah, it's it's it raises sort of some interesting questions about how to be funding basic science and whether companies like Pfizer are sort of taking enough risks with scientists who have big ideas like this um, and, and sort of how plausible it is for small startups like Moderna to fill that gap. Well, and the, the you know, the, the vaccine, um, the sort of difference in economics between vaccines and, and Viagra, you know, another thing there that I think is relevant is that in a weird way, because Viagra is so um, relatively unessential, you have more pricing power. Right. Like people are, in fact, willing to pay a significant amount of money to get their erectile dysfunction addressed. But if you, as the seller of that medication, want to charge a relatively high price for it, you know, it's not that attractive for politicians to stand up and be like, aha, you know, they are just here out for profit. Like, we need to take this intellectual property away. We need to impose price controls, right? And the COVID vaccines are in this weird dead zone where, like, clearly, if paying $100 a shot would get five times the level of production volume, right? Like much faster, much more rapid rollout. It would save incredible numbers of lives. I mean, not just in, in America, right? But I mean, it, you, it would be worth spending incredible sums of money to be able to rapidly vaccinate the populations of India, Brazil, Nigeria, things like that. But you wouldn't do that, right? I mean, these companies, you know, like Pfizer is making money off this, this vaccine. They expect it to be lucrative, but it's not that lucrative because I think they know that if you push the envelope too far, right, on your pricing for something so important as this, people are going to come after you. Uh, whereas like a trivial problem, you can go make money, right? I mean, just like, you know, Apple charges like astronomical sums of money for a brand new iPhone because we just say like, well, you know, if you don't want one, uh, you know, don't buy one. Um, and it's fine. But people really like smartphones. So you can charge tons and tons of money. People like having their erectile dysfunction treated. So you can charge lots and lots of money for it. Uh, but a vaccine is like objectively much more important than stuff like that. But I don't think we have the um, I mean, it's not just like the policy, right? But it's even like as a as a media, you know, like there were just stories just kind of like vaguely scolding the idea of making money off of these vaccines, which might be fine if the upshot of it was like we um, develop a completely different economic model for our society. But like we're still, you know, in capitalism. And if people can't make money uh, developing incredibly important vaccines, then like those exact same companies and exact same people are going to find themselves just working on more trivial products that, that that don't attract the same kind of scrutiny. Yeah, no, and I think the sort of the optimal, there are sometimes uh, proposals to change from a sort of patent-based system of drug development and, and intellectual property protection to sort of a prize-based system. And an interesting question, even when we don't have that system, is sort of what, what price would you put on the prize for this thing? And I would put a pretty high price on on developing and manufacturing successful and, and mass manufacturable COVID vaccine. I've made this argument to, to friends before and, and sometimes get the pushback of, well, the, the prize money would go to Pfizer. It wouldn't go to sort of 
the actual scientists who took risks and and tried to figure out this technology. But you need both. Like the woman who was suffering for years within uh, Pfizer uh, trying to get this idea out. She's brilliant. And and she was an essential part of this process. She can't manufacture millions of doses of a drug on her own. Um, That's a really hard sort of large scale industrial problem. And I think one of the conclusions that came out of this piece is just you you need a lot of coordination between private industry and and the federal government because the federal government doesn't really know how to to run uh, a drug manufacturing setup, but it also can provide monetary incentives to do things that pharma companies wouldn't want to do otherwise and that might be better aligned with the public interest. Well, and a, a scientist, right, can't just um, starve for years working on a uh, low probability, high value um, science operation in hopes of winning a prize at the end. But like actually a large company like Pfizer um, can totally do that, right? Like that's like one of the the benefits of a corporate form is that in a prize-based system, like you could employ several different teams of scientists working on several very distinct lines of inquiry on the hopes that like if one of them pans out, you get a big prize and then you can just like pay people year in, year out. You have diverse revenue stream. I mean, in some sense, that's like what faceless corporations um, are there to do, right? Is you can you can smooth out these kind of fluctuations uh, across things. Um, but the patent-based system means that we don't get to sort of make those um, like obvious social decisions that like certain medical problems are objectively more important than others. And then that doesn't necessarily align with exactly what's the um, like the marketplace value of a given pill. Well, and there's also the kind of problem of who is doing that development, right? Like in practice, a lot of R&D is not being done in-house, but is being funded through grants to scientists at research institutions, uh, which raises both kind of questions about you know, the ultimate intellectual property that gets developed out of those and whether, you know, it's whether it's really ideal to have a situation in which often people who are nominally employed by large state institutions are developing intellectual property that, if successful, will revert to the corporate funder who funded the research, um, but also creates questions about, you know, what the incentives are for those individual scientists and to what extent they are being, you know, the determination of what, you know, what research gets funded, what questions get asked and answered is being kind of artificially constrained by the question of what is most likely to get funding and whether more promising avenues are being abandoned because of the lack of immediate profit margin. You know, the reason that I've been connecting the two of these in my mind is because Matt, you had a, a newsletter last week about the the Congressional Endless Frontier Act and kind of some debates that that opens up about how science is being funded and whether the trade-offs between like a guaranteed high reward model where you're not wasting any money per se, but you're also not necessarily generating like big path-breaking results and a riskier model where some things aren't going to pan out. But the possibility that you're funding somebody who really takes a leap is much greater, right? Yeah, actually, let's take a break and and maybe talk about that sort of more more general um, science funding idea. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. 
With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. So I, you know, this was I, I was writing about the the Endless Frontier Act, which um, it was a cool idea that I had thought for a long time just wasn't going anywhere. Um, it started going somewhere uh, in in Congress, um, but along the way, it sort of got changed um, into legislation that basically just uh, will increase funding for the National Science Foundation, uh, mostly through its existing pipelines, which is like a, I think like an okay idea. Um, but there's been a sort of powerful line of criticism developed over the years. I mean, I think a lot by people um, sort of in the Silicon Valley orbit who are interested in technology. They like technical stuff. They like science. Um, but they are also acutely aware, some of them who are more self conscious, I think, that the kinds of software problems that they work on um, often don't really address the kind of big questions, uh, the, the really big problems in society. And they've gotten interested in, you know, what can we do to move the ball forward on physical sciences and life sciences and and applied technical problems that sort of go beyond um, uh, making you want to keep scrolling through social feeds more, um, you know, and one of the points that they that they raise is that the NSF funding, you know, goes so it's you apply for grants, you get the grants approved, the grants go to university research labs, and it's a very literally like bureaucratic process. It's very institutionalized, and you succeed in that 
process, you know, as a junior person by making your bosses like you, as a more senior person by being good at a middle management function, right? Like, um, you know, and you think about the sort of heroic scientists of, of the past, right? And they were often like kind of weird. Um, you would say like they were, you know, brilliant, but you wouldn't necessarily say they were brilliant middle managers, um, right? Like running labs and writing grant applications and recruiting people uh, to come work for them. And that part of this model is that you don't, it really disincentivizes trying something that the other people who are already getting grants think is dumb, right? Because the idea is, A, to get approval by a bunch of other people, and then B, to have an output in the form of like papers that get published by your peers. So you kind of want to... um I mean, I, I, you know, sort of like hit singles in a, in a baseball analogy, right? Like you try to do things that are similar to the work that other people are doing, but different enough to get a paper out of it rather than things that are like really different. And they might decide that your initial promising results actually aren't promising at all because they reject your premises. Um, but you would sort of get bigger, bigger breakthroughs that way. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I, I found this whole line of criticism to be like not so persuasive that I would like set the whole status quo on fire, but definitely persuasive enough that like if we want to put more money into scientific research, which I think we should, it seems to me that it makes sense to look at different like different institutional funders and different modes of funding, because that's one of the great things that like in theory you can do with plentiful resources is like actually use them in multiple different ways and kind of see what happens or even think that it's, there's just a benefit of diverse models. There's something of an epistemological tension here, right? Because obviously if you think that you have a strategy that works, you know, everything that the kind of good government technocrats would preach about scaling up evidence, you know, like disseminating best practices, scaling up evidence-based models cuts against this idea of being deliberately small C Catholic in how you fund things. But it's a question of whether we are, how much confidence we have in the ability of that process to get the results we want. And there is something to be said for, uh, if we assume, if we don't want to hit a situation where you know, the frontiers of knowledge are stagnating, then assuming we have a fully mature decision-making process might not be the way to accelerate new innovation. Yeah, there, there are these sort of high order questions and then there are sort of, sort of much more simplistic questions that I find a, a little easier to, to tackle that, uh, that I think this also helps address. Like, I have a friend who's a stem cell researcher and, and works in a stem cell lab and, and uh, friends who do sort of robotics research. And like the number one thing they all, regardless of of their specific area of science, complain about is grant writing that just like an extraordinary amount of the time of the most technically talented people in the United States is spent on weird creative writing projects uh, to appease like program officers at foundations and or like the NSF or NIH. And uh, there's obviously sort of like some optimal middle ground here, like you don't 
the federal government doesn't want to be uh, sort of throwing out money to cranks willy nilly. But we might want to be throwing out a little money to cranks if in the process we're simplifying a grant process that frees up a lot of time for uh, for people who are who are talented and, and have high human capital and are uh, being sort of distracted from their actual sort of comparative advantage and skill set by um, these uh, these sort of bureaucratic bottlenecks. So I'm, I'm curious, Matt, how, how much you think sort of Endless Frontier will address that versus just sort of pumping more money into existing ways of getting funding for for research? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it really doesn't, right? And so, you know, Kelsey Piper uh, for, for Fox, she wrote a piece that had the sort of idea that um, maybe instead of trying to award grants to the best projects, you could set some kind of a threshold and then say, okay, like all these applications cleared this threshold, and then we're going to fund a randomly selected subsample of them. And, you know, I think the idea there would be, um, A, that like there's no particularly strong evidence that the selection methods are like that good at a very high level. And then B, that like if you could sort of it's it's a red queen's race, right? Where like people spend more and more time on the grant applications because their competitors are also spending time on the grant applications. But nobody thinks that the purpose of the NIH is to incentivize the best possible grant applications, right? It's to do it's to incentivize good science. Um, so I mean that's a reform idea that's that's interesting. I mean I also do think Dylan, like you said, the federal government um, can't just be giving money willy nilly to cranks, um, which I think is true, right? I mean, I, the government has like a very important role to play in a lot of things in life, um, but everything the government does is necessarily going to be a little bit on the stodgy and bureaucratic side. One problem that I think we've developed in American life is that. People in the nonprofit sector, I think, ought to try harder to be like, how can I do what it wouldn't be appropriate for the government to do, right? And like, actually, I don't know, like, going to lunch with 10 different researchers, deciding you like two of them, and then just like giving them a lot of money and not asking a lot of questions, like... A federal employee could like could not do that, but like a foundation totally could, right? Like you totally could have a hundred different rich people funding three hundred different cranks, and ten of those cranks do something amazing, and everybody gets the benefit of like not needing to work really hard to give you incremental updates on on their progress. Um, that strikes me as like a like a plausible idea for people in the kind of um, third sector, right? That like you want to find people who have enough intrinsic motivation that like you just sincerely believe that if you give them money, they will spend the money on trying to do scientific research rather than, uh, you know, blow it all in Vegas or something like that. Um, You know, and if they blow it all in Vegas, then, you know, you just move on and do something else next time. Uh, Because like creating really elaborate you know, systems of monitoring and, and verification, it's a mixed bag, you know, and I think like everybody knows that from their own workplaces and, and their own lives. 
Yeah. And I think there, there are some some inspiring examples of uh, foundations. I notice like I, I cover philanthropy a little bit and, and that there's there's definitely these like second and third gen foundations like the Ford Foundation now has no connection to Henry Ford or what he wanted uh, or, or anything remotely related to Ford Motors. Um, but people sort of closer to, to sort of the first generation of wealth or, or just sort of individuals giving money outside of a foundation context. Uh, can often be more creative. So uh, I I write a lot about this group called Open Philanthropy that that Dustin Moskovitz, who's uh, uh, made his his billions at Facebook and Asana, and and Dustin's uh, partner Carrie Tuna, um, who's much more involved in the charitable side, uh, created. They do a lot of just sort of individual scientist funding. Um, there's this guy at at MIT named Ed Bowden who. Uh, he works with mice and and using genetic editing such that their brains will respond differently to different kinds of light. And so he's figured out how to, to take mice such that you put little uh, lights inside their skulls. And if you, you turn the light on, certain uh, neural pathways are open. If, and if it's not on, uh, they're not. Uh, and the goal is to eventually make it possible to sort of program the brains of mice with binary and I don't know what that's for, really, <laughs> but but I think they're they're making a bet that like that would be important if you could do it. And even if this is unlikely to succeed, it's worth like freeing up uh, this guy's time so that he's not making grant applications and can can work on controlling his mice. Um, and I'm working on the story right now about sort of some of this UFO drama that's been happening, and it's it's just full of these guys of of because like. Big foundations are not going to fund UFO experiments, but uh, Robert Bigelow, who made his fortune in extended stay hotels, will absolutely fund your UFO organization. He is very into it. Um, and I don't think that's a model in that I I don't find trying to find interdimensional pathways that might uh, explain why you see lights in the night sky, uh, a super productive scientific program. There, there are ways in which it as a funding model strikes me as more promising than than sort of traditional grant methods. Who's going to be laughing when we're taking the wormhole to the Delta Quadrant and you're uh, you're stuck under your blanket? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Dylan, this does for me, though, run right back into those higher order questions that you were initially trying to avoid. Right. Because the distinction between this isn't socially promising to me, but it is a promising funding model. Somebody with like just a slightly narrower horizon of what is productive funding would look at that and say, this is very good evidence that if you what you really care about is helping people, you shouldn't be funding long shot research. You should be like, you know, engaging in you know, you you should be engaging in direct service provision. <laughs> there are there are a lot of questions about what civil society is for, what philanthropy is for, that run kind of both into higher questions of if you have been persuaded that you have a large degree of excess money and that you could be using that money to, you know, improve the outcomes of others, which others are you do you care about and how do you weight that? And also some very cynical concerns about, you know, if Historically, the most effective way to get rich people to give money is to uh, use it for, you know, essentially like reputational capital. What are the things that rich people are going to want their names on? And those are going to be things that that, that is going to run into a very similar political calculus to what the government runs into that like the things that are broadly popular and not 
unpopular among any particularly powerful constituency are going to be the things that you gravitate toward, not the things that are going to be, you know, long shot, easy potential reward, but easy like you're getting dragged for wasting billions of dollars that could be getting spent feeding the poor, providing, you know, like malaria treatment to instead see what you can do to program the the brains of mice in binary. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, I mean, this is like interesting, right? I mean, I, I mean, I think specifically internal to like the open philanthropy as as a project, right? I mean, I know this is this is like been, I think, the yin and the yang over there where, you know, you start out trying to say, well, we should be doing effective altruism. We should look at what really works. What really works is a lot of low cost global public health interventions. But then suddenly it's like, well, wait a minute. Like, what if that actually eliminates like the highest leverage things you can do for the world, right? Like, right. you know, finding wormholes to another dimension or controlling mice uh, for some kind of reason, right? And it it, it becomes a challenge, you know, a difficult kind of problem to think about, right? But I mean, I think my view would be that like on a double meta level, right? It's just, it's good to encourage people who have resources at their disposal to try to be more different from other similarly situated people. That's, I think, like the problem with how, I mean, one thing that happened as Endless Frontier went through the committee process is they just reduced the amount of money that was involved. But the other thing was that, you know, they started with the idea of creating like a new directorate in the National Science Foundation that would have a different um, set of priorities and, and ways of doing things. And that got sort of shrunk down to basically giving more money to the things that were already there. If I could have changed Todd Young's original plan, I would have changed it in the other direction, right? Like have a whole new institution and try not to like be derogatory about National Science Foundation or NIH, like, you're fine, you're great, you're good, here we go. But, like, as long as the federal government is really big and we're talking about very large sums of money, and, like, let's try to create a different institution with a completely different process, a completely different way of thinking about the problem. And, like, one of the reasons people like to talk a lot about um, DARPA in this space is just that like, it's weird. It's very eccentric. And I think when you talk to the DARPA people, part of its weirdness probably would not scale up to a much, much, much larger scale. Uh, but that's fine. It, there's just something good about not always imitating and clustering and hurting and trying self-consciously to say, look, to whatever extent there's like good things coming out of institutions that already exist, like maybe that's fine. Like maybe we can just leave it as is and try to do something else, um, even if it, it might not work. Yeah, there's some precedent for that actually in, in the world of development that mm -hmm. um, sort of when George W. Bush set up PEPFAR as, as a um, sort of AIDS relief effort, um, it was rather deliberately not a USAID project. Um, it, it had sort of its own independent uh, authority and sort of more more permanently, uh, the Millennium Challenge Corporation, which which was set up around the same time, has a, a basically identical purview to USAID. It's also trying to do sort of humanitarian grants and uh, sort of public health grants, uh, anti-poverty grants, um, but has a much more sort of venture capital-y culture to it and, and a wholly different team. And so it makes very different investments. 
And I think a lot of people in development look back at that and there's some consternation about sort of siloing and, and organizations that don't talk to each other. But I think people are generally happy that the the MCC exists because it's uh, this competitor and this sort of there, there's virtue in pluralism and, and virtue in, in bringing a bunch of different approaches to bear on on the problem of sort of funding either sort of development aid or or research. All right. Uh, speaking of pluralism, I think let's let's bring this to a close and yeah. uh, talk about a paper whose findings um, I, I really don't like. Makes me <laughs> uncomfortable. <laughs> Okay, uh, what we have here is Isaac Hakamo and Christoph Kleiner. Um, uh, apologies if I'm mispronouncing uh, names there. Um, so this is a paper is called Forced Entrepreneurs. Um, and so they're looking at the sort of well-known phenomenon that in a recession, if you graduate from college, it's a bad time to get a job. Um, companies that are doing layoffs don't hire a lot of new people, but also companies try to avoid doing layoffs if they can. So that often means freezing hiring. So it becomes a really challenging time to be dumped onto the labor market. Uh, there's a number of studies, I think some of which we've discussed on the weeds about this. They generally find that this is bad. Um, which is what you would, I think, what you would expect to find. And it's a finding that I'm very comfortable with because I like to tell people that it's important to do more to fight recessions. Um, they find, though, that it might be good that one thing that happens when you can't get a job is you become more likely to become an entrepreneur, uh, which makes sense. And you could say, okay, you know, that's like a kind of happy story. They have this quote from Michael Bloomberg. He says, nobody offered me a job. I was probably too proud to go look for one. And I said, well, why not start your own company? You know, and I read a quote like that. And I think, all right, that's like good, like rich guy BS. Um, but it's but it's survivorship bias, right? It's like you ask Michael Bloomberg because he's rich. You don't ask all the people who, who tried and failed. Uh, but what they find, which is crazy, is that um, firms founded by forced entrepreneurs are more likely to survive, innovate, and receive venture backing. In other words, that it's not just that people sort of um, forced to scrape by, you know, some of them found their own companies, but that they're actually better at it than the kind of, I guess, eccentric weirdos who want to go found their own companies, even at times when it's easy to get a job, and that there is this kind of benefit to society and long-term economic growth from the disruption of a recession. And this is also, interestingly, not the like classic Hayek liquidationist, like we need to clear out the dead brush. Um, it's like literally... If you can't get a job, you might be forced to go found a company and be really good at it. And I don't I, like it's a good paper. I, I don't want to dump on the paper, but it's part of what's good about it is that, like, I don't want to agree that this is true. <laughs> well, but but it's it's not just you're not clearing out the brush and getting rid of like sort of underperformers. What's good is that you're getting rid of overperformers right. who are who are who are, right. are likelier to be successful entrepreneurs, and and also, I mean, and this is an assumption on my part, but probably more likely to have been good at their old job. Um, yeah, so I, I think there's the literal reading of this, which is uh, recessions are good, which I do not think the authors would agree with. Uh, that that there are there are many costs and benefits uh, related to to business cycles, and I think uh, almost everyone would agree that the the short-term humanitarian harms and long-term scarring sort of hysteresis and, and econ jargon uh, is mostly negative. 
and so this is a silver lining like mRNA vaccines are a silver lining of uh, of this pandemic. But I think sort of the, the less literal reading is there are a lot of really talented people in low risk careers uh, who could be creating more value for the world and for themselves um, by taking more risks and starting companies. Um, and I think this is sort of a real cultural phenomenon. I don't know how much of it is a shift, but uh, that that in recent decades, there's sort of a large class of, of upper middle class uh, or, or just upper class professionals, law partners, doctors, uh, management consultants, bankers, uh, who have found that they can comfortably make uh, mid to high six figures uh, at stable firms, not taking a ton of risks. And that's fine for them. And and like I have a hard time when talking to friends who are thinking about law school or whatever, like warning them against that life because it seems like a pretty fine life in certain ways. But part of what this paper suggests to me is that there are real costs associated with that and that like maybe my my friend who recently made a partner at a law firm should be like thinking of more creative ways to use his talents. See, that that's a that is not only a more congenial reading, you know, with regards to like the morality of recessions, but also kind of points to some pretty obvious policy solutions, right? Like there are very clear factors that make someone who has, you know, who is graduating from an undergraduate institution with like a large degree of student debt or a law school with an even larger degree of student debt to like not want to go do things with their career that are unlikely to pay off that debt in the you know short to medium term so if if you're if you're buying in on on this kind of idea of an intellectual surplus that's getting sucked up by a credential surplus, then like you can either, you know, limit the number of people who can graduate from law schools or you can, you know, you can provide student debt relief. Um, you can do more to ensure decent health insurance possibilities, even, you know, outside of employment so that people don't feel that that is in any circumstance a condition of them having a stable job. You know, there are obvious policy implications to that. The Question though is, and this is not super, this is not addressed by the paper because it's not answerable, uh, given what they're looking at, is like, is this really a, you know, is this a question of the kinds of people who would be successful entrepreneurs don't think of themselves as potential entrepreneurs? And it really takes that forcing mechanism not just to deprive them of more stable options, but to force them to consider this a thing. Like the way that Matt was, you know, putting it in jest earlier was like the kind of weirdos who normally think that they could just go and start their own company. But like it is possible that there is that there is something to that. And the people who are kind of self-styled entrepreneurs may not necessarily be the people who have the best skill set to succeed. So in that case, increasing flexibility and encouraging people who think of themselves as, you know, baby management consultants to instead think of themselves as baby entrepreneurs just may not work because the people who are likely to take you up on that message may not be the people who are actually going to succeed. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I, I guess, you know, like the, the little idea I have sketched out on the back of my napkin, right, is that like conformists, you know, underselect into entrepreneurship. But actually, they have uh, valuable attributes like emotional stability that make them good at growing startups, right? Whereas like nutty people 
um, you know, who, who are like, ah, oh, I want to be an entrepreneur, right. Are actually not the ideal people to go do that because like bringing organizations to larger scale involves a lot of sort of conventional person kind of, kind of skills, um, and, and doing things. And that's one reason you kind of have this, this recession shock. And this made me think about, this is not a technical economics question, but the, the rhetoric around every billionaire is a policy failure kind of idea, because this kind of suggests like, the opposite, right? That like every low seven-figured salaried person is a <laughs> policy failure, right? And that what you want to do is take several hundred of those people and like throw them off the pier and they all go swim and like two of them become billionaires. And like that is the policy success, right? And that like the policy failure is this kind of – um I don't know exactly what you want to call it, like mass affluent uh, universe who are making a lot of money in high paid, um, high talent careers. Uh, but that, you know, and and of course it makes sense, right? Because like money has diminishing marginal value. Um, it would be like really hard to become a super duper successful corporate founder. Um, it would be risky. It would be difficult. And I'm not sure the monetary rewards are exactly proportionate relative to the monetary rewards of being like a merely rich banking guy. And, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know exactly that you could write tax policy that way. Um, but it's easy to fixate sort of mentally on like the biggest outliers in, in the universe. Uh, but at least like part of the message here is that there's a kind of like lower obscure tier, but this is probably all people we know from college who are like smart and hardworking, but doing like sort of unremarkable things, but making a lot of money doing it. And that's like probably not great for the world. I mean, I do think that the this is now very far afield from the the paper, but it does get us kind of right back to what we were discussing in the first couple of segments of this episode, which is that like the question of every billionaire is a policy failure is also in part looking at hearing Jeff Bezos reportedly like say that he does not know how to spend all of his money. And like, there are tons of people with ideas about how Jeff Bezos can spend all of his money. And, you know, we were discussing some of them. So there is to an extent the idea that the accumulation of wealth doesn't it's not necessarily about what the value you generate along the way, but what that wealth then subsequently generates, uh, I, which is, I think, you know, obviously like there is the argument for becoming an entrepreneur isn't theoretically to get rich. The argument for coming, becoming an entrepreneur is theoretically to produce something that people need. But if you look at the set of you know, and partly this is just because of the what they're selecting for and what they're trying to evaluate in this paper. But like, if you look at the list of apps, the, the authors of this paper are touting as being, you know, founded by people in their data set. Some of them are, you know, like some of them are things that you can absolutely imagine generating lasting value, even outside the kind of hothouse ecosystem of venture capital funding. Some of them are things that definitely made some people a lot of money. Uh, that definitely had a lot of users, but that aren't the social utility argument for entrepreneurship. They're much more the there's a lot of money out there. If you're an entrepreneur, you can get you some model of entrepreneurship. And to a certain extent, the, that model is going to attract a different kind of people who both, you know, may not who like who may have a broader idea of what entrepreneurship can look like and what products they should be producing, but a narrower idea of what they're supposed to do with that money once they make it. 
Yeah. I was also wondering about what this paper tells us about agglomeration benefits, since I, I think sort of part of what it, it seems to be arguing is is that there's this this culture of risk aversion and conformism among a, a certain professional class. And it would stand to reason that in places like San Francisco or Seattle, where there's there's much more of a many of your neighbors are starting companies, their startups are valorized, uh, there's strong sort of cultural attachment to them, uh, that you you might have less of that anti-entrepreneurial bias among this class. I don't know if that's true. And I, I don't know how I, I think most of the the benefits of of large cities like this are are not to the sort of core professional class, but that sort of it's better to be a yoga teacher in San Francisco than it is in Fresno because you're you're serving this this very affluent professional class. Um but I'm I'm sort of curious uh what it what it says about startup centers and and centers of of sort of entrepreneurial culture. Yeah. Well, or that they just (laughs) need more recessions or something. (laughs) Um, By the way, I do, I do want to point this out because I, I I did find it hilarious when we uh, were discussing this paper in planning for this episode that like, we talk about the long lead time on academic publishing and the journal review process the original draft of this paper was posted in 2016, and it's a data set that goes through the from the mid-90s to the mid-20-teens. And in the time since the publishing the first draft of that paper and its final publication in a journal, we've had an entire another recession, which one would assume, if this is really a valid hypothesis, has generated more data that is going to demonstrate the author's point. Obviously, like there hasn't I'm not going to like bet money on that because sometimes things don't replicate. Uh, but it is very entertaining that, you know, in theory, a senior economics major who read this paper in draft form in 2017 could have made different decisions with their life in the intervening four years based on the knowledge in the paper that somebody who was just looking at the final article post prints would not have had. Yes. Uh <laughs> You know what? what I, I do wonder about the just sort of specific healthcare angle here. Um, as a uh, small business owner myself, um, you know, it is definitely true that the existence of the ACA exchanges, um, and I am in the like most derided uh, aspect of the Affordable Care Act, right? Which is like the unsubsidized exchange market, which is kind of like the Obamacare utopia that didn't really work out. Um, but like, it's still way better than the prior situation that existed, which was either that you would have to have disrupted healthcare, or you would need to rely on like a spouse or some kind of, you know, other sort of arrangement to go do it. Um, unsubsidized ACA plans, you know, have relatively poor actuarial value, but they protect you from catastrophic health risk cost, right? Which, which is the sort of baseline uh, proposition that it was set out there to do, that you are in a situation where, you know, a piece of bad luck is not going to like ruin your life. You'll just have to spend some money on it. And, you know, to me, like that makes a real difference. Um, And I know that's something that sort of ACA authors like talked about time and again. Um, But I don't know. I mean, I have not seen any real like follow on research about that. And, you know, has that sort of worked? Uh, Does it does it do something useful for small business formation, things like that? And I know that that fell into the bucket of like, 
things that annoy Democrats about the CBO, because the CBO would say that they thought the availability of these benefits would induce a certain number of 50-somethings to retire early. Um, but like the CBO wouldn't say, well, we can quantify an impact on the number of 30-somethings who will go take a risk on entrepreneurship, even though the, the posited mechanism for those two things is identical. I don't think the CBO was wrong about that sort of like, it's going to lead to labor force dropouts, factoid. Uh, but it just like logically follows that the other thing will also happen. And um Entrepreneurship, I mean, not my entrepreneurship, but people who are doing real things can have like really outsized impact on society. I get that it's sort of hard to quantify that in the sort of tools that they're using, but it's definitely something that I I hope we see more research on going forward. Um, it's a very significant mechanism for like economic progress and social change. Entrepreneurs, they're good. That's our take. Yeah, sometimes <laughs> so, some of them. Uh, some of them are better than others. I don't. I don't know how we're doing the moral <laughs> ranking of like you know Matt versus the Snap co-founders or whatever. Quit your but. job, make a billion dollars, and give it away mostly to cranks. That's the, <laughs> that's the, that's the takeaway of this episode. Correct. Uh, uh, I need. I need some like you know some snappier formulation of that um, somewhere <laughs> to be to be the guideline for the future. Um, but you know, with all that, I hope that while you are um, busy thinking of which cranks you want to donate your billions to, uh, that you will also continue to share our podcast with others in in the known universe. Um, thanks to you so much, Dylan, for joining us. Thanks as always to our sponsor our producer, Eric Janakis, and the Weeds will be back on Friday.